In 12th century England, two children showed up in the small town of Woolpit. They spoke a weird language, they wore strange clothes, they refused to eat anything but beans, and they were green. Who were they? What were they? This is the story of the green children of Woolpit. The history of the green children comes from two relatively contemporary sources that most likely were not aware of one another, as there are some variations between the two accounts. Though we don't have an exact time period for these events, one of the two accounts puts it during the reign of King Stephen, which was between 1135 and 1154. The first historical account we have comes from William of Newburgh's Historia Rerum Anglicarum, which was published in 1198. William bases his telling of the story on multiple accounts from multiple sources that he has compiled into a single narrative. The second historical account comes from Ralph of Cogeshall's Chronicum Anglicanum, which was published in 1220. While the time difference would seem to make Ralph's account less reliable, Ralph has the benefit of taking his story directly from Sir Richard de Calne of Wix, who, according to Ralph's account, personally housed the children after their mysterious arrival. John Clark has done some pretty extensive study both into the story of the green children and into the original Latin texts. The following is his version of the narrative, which combines and contrasts the narrative of both William and Ralph. One day, in the time of King Stephen, according to William, the villagers of Woolpit in East Anglia, harvesters in the field, adds William, saw two bewildered children, a boy and a girl, brother and sister, according to Ralph, apparently emerging from a pit, from the wolf pits that give the village its name, says William. Their skin was green. They spoke an unknown language and, says William, they were dressed in strange and strangely colored clothing. Ralph says that they were taken to the house of Sir Richard de Cullen at nearby Wicks. Both authors agree that they refused all food for several days. According to Ralph, the girl later said that they thought that the food they were offered was inedible. Then by chance, they saw some freshly cut bean plants. At first, they tried to find the beans within the stalks themselves. But once a bystander had taken the beans out of the pods for them, they eagerly ate the beans. For some time, they ate only beans. But gradually, they became used to normal food and, perhaps as a result, lost their green coloring. It was decided to baptize the children. The boy was sickly and died, either before or soon after baptism. The girl, on the other hand, flourished. Once they had learned our language, the children, or rather the surviving girl, according to Ralph, explained that they had come from a land where the sun never shone, but where the light was like that of twilight here. Ralph adds that everything in the land was green. William reports that the children said it was a Christian land with churches. They called it St. Martin's Land and said that from it, another brighter land could be seen across a broad river. According to William, the children could not explain how they came to our land. While herding their father's cattle, they had heard a loud noise and suddenly found themselves in the field among the harvesters. Ralph, on the other hand, says that they followed the cattle into a cavern and had become lost. Following the sound of bells, they had eventually come out into our land where the villagers had found them. Ralph says that for many years, the girl was a servant in the house of Sir Richard de Cowan, from whom he had heard the story, but that she was badly behaved. 
William says that she married a man in Lynn, and he had heard that she was still alive shortly before he wrote. In a postscript, William adds that many illusions are the work of, quote, evil angels, but that he is unable to explain the green children. There are many angles that one could take in trying to understand this story. Some have taken a completely folkloric approach, believing this to simply be a fairy tale. Others have taken a mundane approach, believing the children to have been Flemish immigrants from a town across the river. Others have taken a more fantastical approach, believing it to be proof of the hollow earth theory or a true history of extraterrestrial visitors. This is the approach taken by Duncan Lunan, for example. As per usual, I'm really not fond of anyone else's approaches. (laughs) I doubt very much that two different sources would write down a fairy tale as if it were historic fact happening within the lifetimes of people who would have been able to contradict the story. Also, typically with fairy tales, there is some sort of moral lesson at the end, and we don't see that with this story. I also doubt that Flemish immigrants would have shown up and no one would have known to take them back to their town just across the river. It also doesn't make sense that the girl wouldn't just say, I'm from across the river, can you please let me go home now, once she learned English. Of course, I am also skeptical of jumping to the other end of the spectrum with extraterrestrials and wormholes. I am more likely to be convinced of these theories than people making a big deal out of lost Flemish kids, but I'm not inclined to jump to these conclusions just yet. Full disclosure, my personal bias out of folklore, Flemish immigrants, Hollow Earth, or aliens would be towards Hollow Earth. I have an affinity for both Jules Verne and Brendan Fraser, so I can't help feeling a certain type of way for anything resembling Journey to the Center of the Earth. That said, I'm still skeptical as the wolf pits of Woolpit are by no means caves that lead anywhere fanciful. They're literally just ditches. I have a ditch in my backyard. It has a shopping cart in it from a previous homeowner that I can't get out. But it definitely is not an entrance to a magic land where everything is green. So where do we start? I want to start with the green skin. Other aspects of the story, such as strange language, strange clothes, etc., are pretty subjective. For example, I think Cajun English is weird, but I can still understand some of it. Most of it. Well, it kind of depends on who's talking. Green skin, on the other hand, is pretty difficult to understand. Let's start there and see what we can parse out. Contrary to what you might expect, there are actually several reasons that one skin, or at least parts of one skin, might take on a green hue. These include the use of green dyes in tube feeding, resolving echinosis, some medications, apocrine chromohydrosis, Echrinchrome hydrosis, hyperbiliverdinemia, chloromus, cytomonas infections, and second stage Wells syndrome. None of these really fit with what is described. There are three explanations, though, that I want to examine more acutely. One, really, really ridiculously pale skin. Two, chlorosis. And three, elevated copper. Some have speculated that the green skin was simply really, really ridiculously pale skin because the children came from a land where the sun never rose, so they probably didn't get enough UV radiation to properly activate their melanin. Some of us have veins that appear blue, but some of us have veins that appear green. Become see-through enough with your green veins, and there's your green skin. The green tinge would also readily fade with exposure to sunlight. 
The problem with this theory is that people would have been very aware of paleness at the time. Particularly upper-class women were striving for paler and paler skin, and sometimes willing to put on some extreme makeup to make it happen. With the full coverage of the medieval clothing as well, even on those who worked outdoors, there would be plenty of body parts where the sun never shone. If the children were simply pale, someone would have been more likely to think they looked a lot like the skin on their tuchus rather than green. We also know from true crime stories like that of Elizabeth Fritzel, who was locked in a basement, raped, and impregnated by her own father, that you can in fact be born in a basement, grow up for 19 years without ever seeing the sun, collapse into unconsciousness and be taken to a hospital, all without being described as blue or green by the staff. This explanation is just far too reductionist, in my opinion. I don't think that pale children would have made headlines in 12th century England. Chlorosis, or green skin disease, is an antique disease, if you will, from the 16th and 17th centuries that is one of the most common explanations given for the green children. While medical historians aren't exactly sure what it was, most of them believe it described what is now known as hypochromic anemia. This is typically caused by a lack of vitamin B6 or a lack of iron in the diet. Historically, it primarily was documented in young girls who were just beginning their menstrual cycles. As time went on and diets changed, chlorosis faded into obscurity, which is why we aren't 100% sure today what it was describing. Similar to the paleness explanation, I don't find this very likely. Just like it's debated as to what chlorosis truly was, it's also debated among medical historians whether chlorosis patients even looked green. Many suppose that they did not, particularly considering we see iron deficiency still today without reports of green children. It also historically was seen in young girls, so to have both a girl and a boy suffer from it seems unlikely. And once again, pale, anemic children really wouldn't have been that remarkable in the 12th century. Truthfully, I think pale, anemic children would have been more likely to be named the Suffolk version of a changeling rather than written up in history books as some anomaly. The third condition I want to explore is one that I have not seen others suggest, so this is definitely me throwing the proverbial jello on the proverbial wall and seeing what sticks. When we look at the initial stories, we have two possible reasons that the children lost their color. The first reason would be a change in sunlight, since their homeland apparently lived in perpetual twilight. The second reason would be a change in food. Both William of Newburgh and Ralph of Kogasol suggest that in their stories that the second reason is the correct one, which also negates the really pale skin explanation. If we take their connection to diet on face value, we can either understand that the new diet corrected a deficiency or an excess. A deficiency might lead us to a condition similar to chlorosis, but what about an excess? Specifically, an excess of copper. Now, most of us have seen what copper jewelry can do to the skin. You get a bit sweaty and you end up with a nice green band around your finger or wrist. You may even be familiar with the greenish hue that copper can produce when it bonds with chlorine from the pool and attaches itself quite rudely, if I must say, to blonde hair. Fewer people know that you can actually turn green from ingesting copper as well. It's sort of like that Paul Harrison guy who turned his skin blue by taking too much colloidal silver. The two important questions, though, are 1. 
how green can ingestion of copper turn your skin before copper toxicity takes over? And two, can the body purge copper deposits from the skin? For example, we know that the argyria or blue skin from too much colloidal silver is permanent because the body can't purge those silver deposits from the skin. If copper was the cause of the green children, it would have to be reversible because the girl's skin changed from green to normal. So probably a rather typical English complexion. Barring a genetic condition known as Wilson's disease, the body is able to purge excess copper pretty easily. Some copper is needed naturally by the body for metabolic processes. So what the body does is it keeps what it needs and then excretes the rest via the liver. So how green could a person actually get? Well, it seems that depends on the person. The medical literature has plenty of green-skinned people, but many of them were in the process of dying with multiple organ failure, which does not describe our children. There are some cases where the green hue can occur without the dying, but it is more rare. However, I would suggest that if the children grew up in an environment where they were both consuming and bathing in water with a high copper content, you could get a combination effect from the internal and external copper that would create a greener appearance. Ralph does mention in his account that everything in their homeland was green, which may suggest a high level of copper in their environment that made everything look a bit like the Statue of Liberty. Of course, this isn't conclusive, but it is a plausible explanation that is consistent with the more obscure parts of the medical literature. Speaking of their homeland, who is St. Martin and where is his land? St. Martin's Land is a really curious part of this story, as there are as many or more explanations for St. Martin's Land as there are for the children themselves. There are two main clues to examine for the location of St. Martin's Land, one being the name and the other being the perpetual twilight. The name St. Martin inevitably brings many researchers to a connection with St. Martin of Tours, the third bishop of Tours, France, who lived in the 4th century. There are three other St. Martins that predate the 12th century, but St. Martin of Tours is by far the most famous. That said, this isn't much of a clue. St. Martin of Tours had a widespread cult as early as the 6th or 7th century, so many countries across Europe had areas of deep connection to him. Of course, the most prolific St. Martin cult was that of France, but this by no means indicates the children were of French origin. In fact, it is almost certain that the children were not French. Because of the Norman invasion of 1066, all of the nobility in 12th century England, including the Sir Richard de Caen who gave refuge to the children, spoke Norman French. Any mysterious child speaking French in 12th century England would have easily been able to communicate with at least the upper classes and probably most of the educated clergy as well. Two ideas that really blow open the search for St. Martin's Land come from Duncan Lunan and John Clark. Duncan Lunan suggests that St. Martin's Land was a type of code word that signaled to their interrogators that the children were seeking refuge. And John Clark suggests that the name Martin may have just sounded similar to the word for their home area in their native language. His example is that the Welsh word Merden sounds an awful lot like Martin, especially if you don't completely butcher the pronunciation like I just did. Sorry, but my brain doesn't comprehend Welsh. I barely have a handle on Irish pronunciation, and Welsh is just weird. There's vowels that shouldn't be vowels. Regardless, these ideas mean that the children's homeland may have had absolutely no connection to St. Martin of Tours or anyone else named St. Martin at all. 
And then there is, of course, also the distinct possibility that the name St. Martin's Land and or any of the other answers given by the girl at the inquest were given to her by her handlers and may or may not represent the truth of the matter. Even if we take William and Ralph's reporting of her explanations at face value, however, we can see that the name St. Martin's Land does little to pinpoint an actual location. To be honest, though, I am thoroughly shocked that there were not any articles that I could find that said, or even joked, that Martin sounds like Martian and they were little green children, so they definitely came from Mars. I mean, clearly the only reason the girl survived was because Slim Whitman's Indian love call wouldn't be recorded for another 800 years. And hopefully someone other than my dad gets that joke. Anyway, back to St. Martin's Land. As far as the perpetual twilight goes, there are a few different explanations that have been given, mostly related to hollow earth or aliens. Assuming that this story has a fully terrestrial explanation, I have two ways of imagining what this perpetual twilight might have looked like. One way would be in a cave or hollow earth scenario where you could have some sort of bioluminescent fungus or luminous chemical reaction on the roof of the cave, creating a level of light similar to twilight. The other way would be in a place like Antarctica, where if you lived far enough from the equator, the sun never really rises in the sky. And of course, Antarctica also meets the criteria of having a brightly lit country visible across a wide river, having areas known to be rich in copper, and having a ton of weird stories attached to it. I don't actually think the green children were from Antarctica, though. I don't personally put enough stock in the Piri Reese map or any other old map purporting to show animals at the South Pole as proof of an Antarctica without ice in the 12th century. Plus, I feel like the girl might have mentioned the months without sunlight if she were truly from one of the Earth's poles. That pretty much leaves me at some sort of copper-filled cave scenario for St. Martin's Land. Otherwise, we have to resort to time travel, wormholes, and other oddities that while they may truly have happened, require extraordinary evidence that we simply just don't have in this story. I do want to go back, though, to the Flemish immigrant theory, as this is probably the most agreed-upon theory by skeptics in particular. As I said before, some have suggested that the Green children were Flemish immigrants. But even more specifically, some have suggested that they were Flemish immigrants from Fornham St. Martin, near Barry St. Edmunds, who were orphaned in a massacre of Flemish peasants. I have some issues with this theory, even aside from the fact that it hinges on the children's green appearance being from paleness or anemia. There was a Battle of Fornham that took place in the parishes of Fornham St. Genevieve, Fornham All Saints, and Fornham St. Martin in 1173 as part of the revolt of 1173 to 1174. There was a massacre of Flemish people associated with this battle, but it was of the Flemish mercenaries who were assisting the rebels. It isn't clear that a widespread massacre of the non-fighting Flemish immigrants occurred. This explanation also has timeline issues. To be fair, the exact date of the Green Children incident is undetermined. William of Newburgh puts it at the reign of St. Stephen, which was from 1135 to 1154, well before the Battle of Fornham. Ralph of Cogeshall does not give a date in his narrative, but within the larger context of his book, he places it between a story from the time of King Henry II, 1154 to 1189, and a story from the time of King Richard, 1189 to 1199, which could suggest that it occurred in the time period of one of those two reigns. 
John Clark makes a point to say that Ralph does not strictly tell his stories in chronological order, though. So it's possible that his placement of the green children between the two later stories was a reflection of context, not timeline. Richard de Collin died around 1187, so the green children incident would have had to occur sometime between 1135 and 1187. Realistically, it's probably more like 1135 to 1182 at the latest, as there would have had to have been time for the girl to work several years in Richard DeCallan's household before his death. Duncan Lunan, proponent of the alien theory, and Paul Harris, proponent of the Flemish theory, both place the tale in the 1170s. However, John Clark favors a date around the end of the reign of King Stephen, thereby being consistent with William's account while explaining the possible timeline confusion by Ralph, where he may have thought it happened under the reign of King Henry II. I'm more inclined to agree with John Clark on this one. William of Newburgh published in 1198, probably due to his own death that same year, but he almost certainly would have started writing several years before that. That's just about two decades after the Battle of Fornham. If the Green Children arrived in Woolpit just two decades before he started writing, I find it very unlikely that he would have said it happened at least four decades earlier. I mean, I understand that our world is a little different than 12th century England, given the internet and such, but there's not a single part of me that would think that 9-11 happened in the 1980s, or that Britney Spears predated Madonna. Not only that, William was the scribe who received the story from several sources, meaning that all or at least most of them would have had to misremember the timeline for William's account to be wrong. I think it's far more likely that the Green Children incident occurred during the reign of King Stephen, and that Ralph of Cogus Hall simply wasn't putting a timeline onto his version of the story. If that is the case, the Green Children would have predated the Battle of Fornham by quite some time. So not only do I doubt that pale Flemish children would have been described as speaking a strange language, wearing strange clothes, or being green, but also I don't believe the timeline lines up for this to be a plausible explanation. One more thing I want to examine is whether it is possible for the children to represent a species of relic hominoids. I'm on a bit of a relic hominoid kick right now because I am working on a book on the topic. Let's go through the description of the children point by point. One, their skin was green. Well, I've already explained that I believe copper was probably the cause of this condition. The presence of dark hair all over the body, such as what is seen in the North American Sasquatch, would probably make it impossible to see a greenish color, regardless of whether it was from copper or something else. If we are considering a relict hominoid species closer in relation to modern humans, though, the door may still be open. Modern humans have three types of hair. Terminal hair, which would be like what grows on the head. Vellus hair, which is the peach fuzz that's on the bulk of the body and androgenic hair, which occurs in places such as the pubic region and armpits, and transforms from vellus hair to terminal hair with puberty. Most of the reports of more human-like relict hominoids, wild men if you will, describe long hair on the head but shorter hair all over the body. This suggests to many cryptozoologists that perhaps the vellus hair that we have on the bulk of our body is androgenic hair in these relict hominoids. I think we all have that one hairy uncle that might get shot for being a Sasquatch if he ran naked through the woods. Think that, but even more so. With these children being prepubescent when discovered, the body hair would presumably still have been in the vellus state, allowing the green hue of the copper to present itself. Two, they spoke an unknown language. The current scientific understanding of Neanderthals is that they had the ability to speak. 
This makes sense if they truly did interbreed with modern humans as much as the scientific community suggests. Assuming the children were of a relic hominoid species similar to Neanderthals, it would make sense for them to speak a language that could not be understood by any modern human of the time. Three, they were dressed in strange and strangely colored clothing. Most of our reports of wild men involve some level of clothing, some of which is rags from modern humans and some of which is animal hide. It's possible that the strange clothing of the children simply represents ragged clothing atypical of polite society at the time, and the strange color could be explained by clothing that experienced the same level of copper exposure as the children themselves. Four, they refused all food for several days. This is consistent with reports of captured wild men from the 19th century. Humans tried to feed them human food, and they would balk every time. Several wild men actually died in captivity because they would not accept human food. But these children ate beans. Lots of beans. This is perhaps the one thing that makes me doubt that these children were relic hominoids. Most of the reports I've read of wild men involve roadkill and or stolen livestock. That said, we really have no idea what relic hominoids might eat on the whole, nor are we sure that the children were presented with raw meat as an option. They probably were not. Beyond that, the story of St. Martin's Land certainly could have been a cover-up to hide the presence of relic hominoids. In such a religious society, the idea that we are not the only species of human would certainly have not been a welcome revelation. It's not really a welcome revelation now in today's society, and we're hardly religious in the traditional sense. We also learn from Ralph that the girl worked for Richard de Collin for many years. She was apparently wanton and impudent, but ended up marrying a man in Len. Well, for the wanton and impudent part, so much could be and has been assumed about that description. However, if we presume that the satyrs and incubi of myth are descriptions of actual relic hominoids, as is believed by many people in cryptozoology slash hominology, then we have an understanding of these relic hominoids as being far more sexual than Christian medieval culture. It's certainly possible that the girl just refused to comport with the standards expected by medieval minor nobility. And again, Neanderthals were supposed to have bred with modern humans quite regularly, according to scientific establishment, so there's no reason that the girl could not have grown up and married a human. Maybe these children were relic hominoids. There isn't any specific information that precludes this possibility, and it certainly seems more likely than aliens. But honestly, I have no idea who or what or where in regards to the green children. The more you get into the facts and the theories, the more you realize there is just too much that we do not and cannot know, making it impossible to determine anything conclusively. There may be a mundane explanation for the children that doesn't involve wormholes or aliens or fairies, but I doubt seriously that the explanation is as mundane as Flemish orphans. In fact, my guess is that there is a perfectly reasonable explanation for the green children, an explanation just as reasonable as there is for the wild man tale that precedes the green children in Ralph's history. But of course, wild men tales are only reasonably explainable to me, because I believe modern humans are not the only homo species alive today. Before I leave you, I do just want to thank everyone for their patience and for the good vibes that were sent regarding both my pregnancy and my aunt's illness. Unfortunately, my aunt did pass away last month, but we are relieved that her suffering is over. 
when you receive a terminal diagnosis like glioblastoma, you know it's going to be pretty ugly before it ends. And my aunt's case was no exception. It wasn't pretty, but at least she's now at peace. That is partially why it's been so long since my last episode, though. It's been pretty hard to get motivated. As far as the baby goes, I'm still pregnant and increasingly uncomfortable, but I seem to be complication-free so far, so I'm very thankful for that. I am due August 1st, so we have probably about another month or so of me getting more pregnant and more uncomfortable. If you have checked out my new website, erin-kane.com, you will have noticed that I have been using my hibernation period away from the microphone to write a book. I also mentioned earlier in the episode. I'm hoping it'll be out later this year, but definitely check out that website for more details on the journey as it unfolds. Also, don't forget to use my code WhatSamHillPod at Redacted Coffee Company to get 10% off your order. I just restocked on the Black Site Prison Blend this week so that I can pack some in our hospital bag, because my husband will not do hospital coffee. Anyway, go hug your family, enjoy the sunshine, and stay tuned for the next episode.